Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining Talk with Judith today. I am so excited to introduce to you someone I have been introduced to not long ago, and we have organically become great friends. Um, none other than Mr. Alan Kimball. A little bit about Mr. Alan Kimball, which I am learning so much more as we can very well versed in a lot of uh, historical matters that, you know, the average person may not research. And sometimes I could uh, find him bringing up points in our conversation, um, to, you know, points of learning things that I have not known. Um, and here it is. I am generations younger than he is, but I'm able to learn so much from him. Mr. Kimball is also a post-Katrina um, historian. He has studied uh, a lot of the operations that have happened around um, the city and as far as the impact it has had on the natives of New Orleans. And it's very interesting that we, we are able to learn so much from his point of view. Um, he also has a sister who will be sharing in one of our future shows. Her name is Beverly Kimball Davis, and she's also an artist who has a book out um, about Katrina as well and the effects that it had on a lot of African-American people here in the city of New Orleans. And her story is, is creating awareness of what really happened during that time. Uh, people trying to survive uh, the devastating storm, a historical storm here in New Orleans. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to Mr. Alan Kimball. How are you, Mr. Allen? I'm just fine, Judith, and I thank you for allowing me to come and, and uh, speak to your, your, your listeners. This is very exciting. Thank you so much. It's great to have you. Thank you for taking the time out. Um, you know, my goal, as we have been having so many conversations, my goal is to continue uh, to converse with you and to learn as much as I can, um, not to take away from you, but to become knowledgeable of things that are happening. And as I research, as you research, you know, creating awareness, to letting people know, not just um, relying on the media and things that we hear through hearsay, but understanding the facts of these matters that we are dealing with as dealing with as people. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to, um, you know, just connect with you and bring you into the platform uh, and to my listening audience. So that way, you know, your voice and, um, you know, the awareness that you create is relevant to, you know, some of the matters that we are dealing with. Well, Judith, uh, having met you is a godsend because uh, I'm an historian uh, in several different phases uh, of, of history. But uh, my big problem was um, having gathered all these information and in just my life, uh, the contributions that I have to make, uh, I had the problem of well, what to do with it, what to do with it. And I've got so much information to um, to share, and this is information that you're not going to get anywhere else. So, um, like I said, I am extremely happy that uh, that we've come together so that I can share this information with your listeners. Um, I'm writing a book. Actually, I got three books to write, but um, I'm going to start one pretty soon. But that takes time. So, one of my great worries was, well, you know, 
it gets this information out. So um, I'm really happy that you know you and I have become friends, so we can share this information with uh, the people that listen to your program. What are the most important things that you think we need to share in this time with what's happening right now and in, in the state of the the world right now? Oh Lord, that's that's huge. Um, um, that that's huge because there are several things that we as a people who should be concerned with, uh, there's the micro and then there's the macro. Um, let's start with what we need to do in New Orleans and as black people in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we can get to the world situation because um, that's part of our solution as well. Um, let me say that I'm a post-Katrina historian and um, right away, before the uh, flood, came, uh, hurricane came to New Orleans, and before the flood, um, I was paying quite close attention to what was going on. And um, I had this feeling that if this storm actually came to New Orleans, if the flood came, if there was a flood, mm-hmm. then it would be really disastrous for New Orleans. Um, uh, my fears were, were confirmed when I saw this news article that happened before the flood actually, uh, before the hurricane actually came to New Orleans. And I'm going to share it with you so that you can put it on your website and share it with your readers. But um, anyway, once the hurricane happened and the flood happened after the, the hurricane, I knew it was going to be the end of New Orleans as we've all known it. Um, I'm going to be delivering a lot of bad information, sad information for um, our people in New Orleans, but it's just something that you cannot do anything about. All you can do is prepare, and you can try to mitigate the damage that is being done. But um, I'm going to be sharing some very serious information about New Orleans, and um, some of it's going to be hurtful. A lot of it's going to be hurtful, but the sooner you absorb this information, we can get about doing what we need to do, and there's a lot that we need to do. The subjects that you've talked, you've mentioned, would probably cover about six or seven hours to, to talk about properly, but you know, I'll just go through them quickly since you've mentioned all, and we can talk more in depth over subsequent conversations. This thing about crime, this thing about crime, I'm really glad that you hit upon that because crime is an illusion. It's an illusion. Uh, I'm not saying incidents don't happen, but the illusion is that there is an effort to get rid of crime, that there's no such thing. Crime is something that is wanted because it's very profitable. It's very profitable. If crime was to be gotten rid of, then a lot of people will be put out of business, won't have jobs. Cities have grown to depend on monies that are gotten because of the illusion of crime. Uh, As a matter of fact, let me see, the city city in Texas where all those children got killed, I think I'm just I can't remember the specifics, but I'm just going to talk sit off the top of my head. I think the police department 
budget was about one third or one quarter of the city's budget. Wow. So this situation of crime and trying to end crime, that's an illusion. That's telephone, television folklore. No, um, it, it, they don't want getting rid of crime. If they did, what they would do is they would train people in jail to be able to have jobs, to educate them so that they can come back into society and, and be assets to society. But they don't do that because they would not have as many jobs to uh, to 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 um, to be able to have principally for white people, but you've got black people in, into uh, criminal justice as well. Now you understand when somebody creates a crime, uh, it, it it starts a lot of money to be generated. There are bills bonds billsmen, there are are clerks in the courts, there are judges, there are attorneys. Uh, there are people in the jails and the prisons. Um, when a person gets involved in the crime, and police, of course, when a person gets involved in crime, uh, be they guilty or innocent, it does not matter. A lot of money is created to, to uh, help a lot of people, and principally white people. So uh, this thing about not appreciating crime and wanting to end crime, that's untrue. So what you're saying is... If crime was to diminish, that would decrease the need for jobs to handle criminals. Well, yeah, well, what, what, what it would do is it will stop the gravy train. It will stop the generation of lots of money. It, it, is, it is a cash crop. Crime is a cash crop. It's, it, it's where a lot of money is, is gotten and it's gotten pretty quickly and pretty easily because all you got to do is just get a lot of black folk and run through the system. Uh, there are a lot of police officers, or formerly police officers, who have this thing with conscience, and they come out and say, "Yeah," they said, "You know, we had um, we had to we were expected to arrest, make so many arrests, and if I found that I, I did not have enough arrests, then I'd go into the black neighborhood and grab somebody, and I would bring you know I'd arrest him." To make my quota, and I can show you. I can I can show you uh, people who have to, who said that former police officers. These are white former police officers. So so um, so you're saying that there's a target of absolutely absolutely. It's just like uh, what is that program? Cops. I think what is it called? Cops or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I can't remember. They'd say bad boy, bad boy. I can't remember the name of that program. What's going to do when it comes? Yes. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you find that those people have a way of going into the black neighborhoods and the Mexican neighborhoods, but they seldom go into the rich white people's neighborhoods. But, but where do you... Okay, so we, we may get a little uh, <laughs> on edge here, but where do you think the crime is happening and why why is it that you're you're segregating the conversation to say white neighborhood, black neighborhood, um, how do you, what makes you formulate that, you know, that narrative um, to say this is where they're targeting to go? Like, what is the reason for that? Facts. That's why I'm speaking factually. You just have to open your eyes. Uh, you, have to, you have to understand that black people are only 15% of American population, but you go into jails and the the percentage is extremely huge because 
they target black people uh, because black people are less inclined to be able to mount a legal challenge. Black people are, are, are more believable as to be criminals because that's part of the white psyche. Uh, you know, I speak factually. I'm not, I don't pull facts out of the air because this is a matter of open your eyes. Uh, well, let me, this is a business. Let me go back to something that was told to like, me. Uh, basically, what I'm trying to say is, do you feel or do you think that there was some form of intentional um, arrest to get people back to work for free and enslaved through the prison system? Indeed, indeed, right. That's, yeah, every, everything is intentional. There are no incidents. Uh, there's a recurring theme in America where black people express purpose is to generate monies for white people. You see it on the basketball court and on the football fields. Okay. You know, I mean, uh, these people may look like they're making money, you know, these black players, but uh, all it takes is one injury or if they do not, do everything the contract says, they don't get those multi-million dollars. Uh, and, 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 and it's a, it's a dangerous thing. You know, these bread, uh, these brain injuries that these people, uh, sustain out in the football field. But, um, yeah, uh, the constitution allows slavery. The constitution allows slavery for prisons. Most people don't, don't know that. But, is, but that uh, because way, is that also a way? The, they make those things so that the bottom line, the profit is greater because you're making these people who you incarcerate actually bring down the cost of incorporating them. So what may look good, you know, uh, oh, we do this, we grow our own food, we have our own cattle and stuff like that, that appears good on the surface. But the fact is that is money that, the uh, overhead would normally have to pay for that is not. Uh, so, you know, uh, mm -hmm. right. Now, now, let me just, since we've talked about Angola, let's talk a bit about Angola prison. Right here in Louisiana, something about uh, 80 miles, 100 miles from Louisiana, I don't know. Anyway, Angola was a plantation at one time. And recent was called Angola is because the people who they brought from Africa were principally brought from Angola in uh, Africa. Africa. Yes. Uh, when the Emancipation Proclamation came, then the um, the uh, plantation had to release its people. Well, the theory was to release its people. Uh, the owner of the plantation panicked. He went to the Louisiana legislature and convinced them to allow him to turn Angola plantation into a prison. And it was allowed so overnight, the people who were actually enslaved in Angola became prisoners. Wow. So but they they've freed. been. So how did that? Give me a break. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on now. Look, look, Juneteenth, you know, uh, we just celebrated the first Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. But Juneteenth, uh, the celebration came about because the Emancipation Proclamation happened, and it wasn't until two years two years that the Union Army went into Texas and, and, and told the people they had to free the enslaved people. I mean, that's two years. They got two years of extra labor out of those people. You know, um, I don't make these things up. And there are no incidences. Um, they, they make money wherever they can off of black people. 
you take, for instance, the telephones in jails, you know, like you say, you get one call or whatever. Uh, they actually pay people very poorly in jails, and they use it to to buy, make phone calls, buy cigarettes, to do these things. But the, those phone systems are usually owned by a lot of the wardens or the jail directors and stuff like that. The black bodies of our ancestors back in 1619, uh, the same thing, the same purpose that they had is the same purpose that people right now at this very minute in Orleans Parish and also Angola prison and prisons throughout the United States, it is to generate income for white people. So, okay. So, Basically, you're, you're telling me something I didn't know, um, that this was a plantation. So maybe my explanation of it came through understanding when people were s- supposed to be free and pinning that letter was another um, thought that came to mind without knowing the details of Angola which was an example of what I was trying to say. You're telling me that really this owner turned it into a prison and the people that were slaves became prisoners. That's right. Wow. So then two years, I know you went to Texas to talk about, um, you know, what happened for uh, Juneteenth, but there's two years of labor. Is Free that, labor. Is that from the time of Angola slaves becoming prisoners to the time of the Emancipation Proclamation? It would have been in that same period because uh, the Emancipation Proclamation uh, put out the words that you had to let go uh, the the enslaved people, and uh, the South was very reluctant. I mean, the South was belligerent then; it's belligerent now. Uh, it's not like okay, we're going to do that. So the Union actually the, the actually sent uh, Union troops uh, here in New Orleans. They were here about ten years, and uh, the commandant was Butler. His name was Butler. But uh, they sent the troops down to Texas, and they had to free these people. Now, like I said, that was two years after Emancipation Proclamation. Okay. But uh, white we'll, folks will get. I'm sorry. We'll we'll go back, um, and I'll I'll definitely educate myself a little bit more to understanding sure. that, um, you know, the timeline of what really happened. But <clears throat> to fast forward to something you were um, getting into. Basically, you're talking about the phone systems. Um, you're talking about the operations, the wardens, things like that. Do you know of any private-owned prisons? Because I, I was thinking that maybe there's some um, profit to oh, be made. Oh, for sure. But I'm not familiar with the the prison systems and how, you know. Oh yeah, 
Yeah, a privatization. Uh, I think this really got big on the George Bush with the privatization uh, effort. Right. Uh, what they did was say his big thing and the Republican thing is to uh, privatize government run things. The government used to run a lot of things, but uh, the Republicans think, well, well, a business can be making money as opposed to government. And uh, uh, the jails, many of the jails were privatized. Uh, uh, as I probably mentioned to you once before, when I was a technician for ADT and some other alarm companies, uh, I was dispatched to a city in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. It was a little southern city. It was the hometown of Andy Griffith. I can't remember the name of it. I think it was airy something, uh, something about the air. But anyway, the city had no, it had no industry except for a big prison. That's the only thing that city had was a prison. It got rid of agriculture and uh, Mount Airy, I think, or something like that. Anyway, it was a state-of-the-art prison. And what they did was they rented out prison space uh, to surrounding areas in the federal government. And, of course, what this does is this creates a need for bodies because an empty bed is a loss of money. And that I'm speaking broadly throughout all the states. The way contracts are written is uh, if they're they're going to rent space out, say, for the federal government, uh, they rent out beds or, or bunks, and they're given enough money for each person three times a day for the eating and stuff like that. But... Even if a bed is not slept in, if it's an empty bed, uh, they must pay for that as well. Wow. They must pay for that as well. So you have to understand that there is no impetus for rehabilitation. And what happens is you look to filling those beds to increase profit. And what you do is you create reasons to bring black bodies and get those black bodies in there so you can generate income. So what do you do? You 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 circulate drugs and guns in the black neighborhoods. I know we were talking and, uh, about that earlier. Um, indeed. Basically, what, what you were saying is that they didn't just show up. Somebody, the gun makers, the drug makers. Um, Absolutely. You know, people didn't go get them. They, they're imported in. Absolutely. I, I went to Vietnam in 1970. I went to, and it took about two and a half, maybe three years to come back. When I came back, New Orleans, and there were no drugs in New Orleans. There were no, none to, to mention. When I came back about two or three years later, drugs were all over the city of New Orleans, all over the city. And they had brought those drugs and they had, had spread those drugs. And, of course, guns were all over the city. And you just let nature take its course. And uh, especially with the situation where uh, jobs are being taken away from blacks and given to other peoples. Uh, uh, So you keep the jails filled with black bodies. And they'll talk about, oh, we need more money to fight crime. The police department is constantly growing. And uh, I mean, we... we even though we're talking about this, there is a public safety um, shortage, especially here in New Orleans, but there also is an increase in crime. Um, you know, there is no stability 
in the system itself. And I hear you um, talk about it from a profit perspective. You know, I'm looking at it from, you know, the, the, what's being shown in the media, what is being displayed in the streets, you know, not just new Orleans. Of course we have other States cities um, that have, that are crime infested as well. Um, but I wanted to, you know, we can come back to this, but I wanted to at least get the dialogue started so that way we can, you know, we can land on what's next and what we, we, you know, potentially will see the future of New Orleans to be. But while we're on this subject of crime and um, I wanted to bring up the, the situation that is happening right now in the media with uh, the woman that was approached by young 14 year old, I believe uh, 14 at the time, Emmett Till. And, you know, what was said is that he whistled or flirted, you know, with her and um, he was kidnapped, you know, by the, I don't know if it was her husband or the three men who had kidnapped him and brutally murdered him. And she reported, you know, the, the fact that he, he did this, but she, she was a part of the, you know, the, the scenario and she knew about the murder, but never was arrested or was never, the warrant was never served. They, they were saying that the uh, arrest warrant was found uh, all these years later, I believe what? How many years is that? 70 years? Uh, from 1955. Okay. Wow. 55, 45, 65, 67 years. Uh, I can tell you because this is part of my story. Mm-hmm. It's part of my story. In 1955, uh, I was seven years old. And when this happened, and... Um, I was very small, and the world was just opening up to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, this young boy from the north, you know, Chicago or something, came down south to visit family. And he probably whistled or said something to a white woman. And uh, her husband and even the sheriff was involved in taking him and killing him and mutilating his body. And uh, this was a big deal in 1955. Because on Jet Magazine, we had Jet Magazine. That was a little magazine that um, people bought. His mother did something unusual. She allowed Jet Magazine to take pictures of his mutilated body and put those pictures in Jet Magazine. And um, uh, it, it, you could not you could not tell it was a, a human being how they beat his they bashed his face in and it was horrible. It was grotesque. Anyway, I saw that as a child. In a a river or something where they later found the body in the river. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. They beat him where you could not, you could not tell he was human. And I was seven years old and I asked my mother, I said, why do white people hate us? I probably said, why do white people hate colored people? That's the way we used to talk. And my mother was at a loss. And, and and she was a good good woman, and she 
I can't specifically remember what she said, but I'm knowing her, she would have said, you know, God sees this. You'll have to ask God. God will take care of it, or something like that. That that's the way my mother was. But anyway, I was touched by this because I couldn't imagine what would cause white people to hate black people that they would do this to a child. I was scarred. I'm still scarred. I am still scarred because I, ever since that has happened, I have always tried to understand what motivates white people. Why? What motivates those people? Why do they destroy us? Why do they kill us? So is that and, your first, is that your first real um, crime that you have not witnessed, but been, you know, recognized as a hate crime? A seven-year-old well, boy? Well, prior to that, I had known of, oh, God, yes, I had known of The police department had a, a special dog, and this dog had his gold tooth, and this dog's name was Nigger. And they what? trained this dog. This dog's name was Nigger. And uh, they trained this dog to, kill, to, to sick on black people. And they had something called the paddy wagon. The paddy wagon. And, uh, yeah, we knew about these things. I mean, the things I can tell you. There, there were cases, there were situations in New Orleans where, where, the, where the people would come and they would steal you and they would take your body to the um, university and use your body for uh, the young doctors that are, uh, are using stuff like that. These were realities right here in New Orleans. Uh, you know, young doctors are learning. They would dissect your body and stuff like that. Uh, these were realities back in them days. Yeah, but but wow. the killing and mutilation of um, Emmett Till was different for me because he was not much older than I. And then to look at his body, a mutilated body, uh, struck me more than anything else. And, um, you know, what what is to keep them from doing the same thing to me? 